0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 1 Peter 1, 1 1, uh, verses 13 through 20, and then additionally 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17, we're going to be in two places. Uh, I sent out an email this past week to to those who we have email addresses for, but all of our Advent sermons are going to come out of the letters of 1st and 2nd Peter this year. So I I encourage you, if you you haven't done so, uh, familiarize yourselves with both 1st and 2nd Peter, read through them, read through them daily. Uh, Familiarize yourself with what Peter is communicating, how he's communicating, and Um, Just let that enhance what we do on Sunday mornings uh, through your own individual time. But we're talking about hope today as the kickoff of our Advent series. And I want to give you just my own personal definition of what Christian hope is. Christian hope is confident expectation grounded in the Trinity, Christian hope is confident expectation grounded in the Trinity. What I mean that it's grounded in the Trinity? Well, it's grounded, first of all, in the promises of God the Father. In His promises of what has already occurred and His promises of what is still yet to come. Our Christian hope is grounded in His promises. Secondly, our Christian hope is grounded in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, and now what He now does for us as He sits at the right hand of the Father, according to the book of Hebrews, interceding for us. Our Christian hope is grounded in His work. And then thirdly, our Christian hope is grounded in the empowerment that we have by God the Spirit. That the indwelling Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is empowering us to hold on to the hope that come with the promises of God the Father, that come by the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And so a key for us as we talk about hope today, and, and hopefully as you think maybe about it through this week and the next few weeks, is that our hope, if we are to be the presence of hope for people, our hope has to be grounded in these things. It has to be grounded in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It has to be grounded in His promises. It has to be grounded in the work of Christ. It has to be grounded in the empowerment that we receive from the Holy Spirit. There may be times in my life and your life where we do get what we hope for here on earth. But understand this. Anything that you and I can get for, that, is, that we can receive, that is earthly has two things attached to it. One is, if it's earthly, there comes a point where it never fully satisfies you. If it's an earthly hope, if it's a worldly hope, that it comes a point where it never is fully satisfying to you any longer. And then secondly, anything that comes to you or me as an earthly or worldly hope that we receive is something that can also be taken away from us in an instant. A home, a car, a life a job, anything that we might receive that's earthly is something that can be taken away from from us in, in an instant. But this Christian hope that's grounded in the work of the Trinity, this Christian hope that's grounded in the promise of Scripture and the truth of God's Word and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, this Christian hope always satisfies. It never leaves you hungry. And secondly, it's secure. It's held captive by the Spirit of God, and you will never, ever lose it as a believer in Christ. And so for us to think about being the presence of hope in people's lives, we have to hold on to these truths. And so we're going to look at First Peter, two sections here, uh, beginning today to talk more about this. Our first one comes out of 1 Peter 1, 13 through 20, if you want to follow along with me, if you will. I'll remind you that beginning today, I'm now preaching out of the New Living Translation. I also sent an email out to that with my reasons explaining that, and so uh, it may sound a little different to you, but hopefully it's uh, very clear today. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 20. <clears throat> so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residence. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ the sinless spotless lamb of god god chose him as your ransom long before the world began but now in these last days he's been revealed for your sake so our first point today is this christian hope must be fixed And I don't use the word fixed there to say that Christian hope is broken and thereby needs to be repaired. I'm using fixed here in the sense of it must be anchored, it must be secure, it must be immovable. The Christian hope must be fixed on the right things, and the right things that it is fixed upon is the work of the Trinity the, throughout history and throughout our lives, and this promise of this salvation that is to come, or we sometimes we say, this kingdom of God that is to come. If you've got your Bibles open, look at First Peter one verses eight and nine, just as an example. Peter is talking in his beginning verses of the letter about this hope of eternal life and what God has done through Jesus Christ. And 8 and 9 say this, You love Him even though you've never seen Him. Though you do not see Him, now you trust Him. And you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. The reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your souls. In other words, Peter says, the reward for trusting Jesus will be that one day the full salvation of your soul will occur, occur." and we're going to talk about this a little bit today. That what the Bible teaches is that we have been saved, we are being saved. Hebrews says he is sanctifying us, he is saving us. But ultimately there is a day that we will be saved fully, that the kingdom of God will come fully in its presence, that Christ the King will return, and all things will be made right. And in that moment, the fulfillment of your salvation will occur. In in New Testament writing, the Christian hope is fixed on the life that is to come, not the life that we have now. Nowhere in the Bible are any believers in Christ instructed to have hope in the things of this world. Actually, quite contrary to that. In Romans 8, 24 and 25, as an example, Paul is writing there, and he's writing about this coming of Christ, and that even creation cries out and groans for it, and he says this in verse 24 and 25 of Romans 8, we were given this hope, meaning this hope, this anticipation of when Christ will return, we were given this hope when we were saved, if we already have something, we don't hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we wait patiently and confidently. He says, Well, you don't hope for something you already have. Kids all around us over the next few weeks are not hoping for toys that are already on their shelves or in their closets or crammed underneath their beds or wherever they may be. They're hoping for something they yet to possess. And so the Christian hope is never to be found in this world, in this life, in this earthly realm. It is always to be fixed on what is yet to come. That same Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, and he's basically saying, if Christ has not been resurrected, then everything's futile. Our preaching's no good. Your living, obedient, and holy lives is no good. And he sums up that little section in verse 19 by saying, essentially, if in this life we only have hope, then we who are Christians are to be pitied more than everybody else. If, if we only have hope in this world, in this earth, in this life, we're to be pitied more than anybody else. The Bible never instructs a believer to have hope in the things of this world. Quite the contrary, it is continually, fully exposing us to understand that we only have hope in what is to come. And so for us to be the presence of hope, our hope must be fixed, It must be fixed on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It must be fixed on what is to come, not what has already come, even though the kingdom has begun, Christ said. And so look at Peter's instructions for this as we go back through these verses for just a moment. Verse 13, he basically says, pay attention to how you live, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. He says, prepare your minds for action. Now, some, some of the older translations use this phrase about girding up your, the loins of your mind. I'm guessing nobody really uses that phrase very often. Um, so you might not know what girding up the loins of your mind mean or what it means to gird up your loins. So I'm going to give you a little visual here using one of our baptismal robes. First century people walking around didn't have jogging pants. Or shorts or anything like that, did they? And so this phrasing of girding up the loins would mean they often had multiple layers of loose hanging clothing like this. And if they were ever in a hurry or they had to run or they had to get somewhere quickly, when you have multiple layers of loose clothing like this, it's not very easy to run. And so the girding up of the loins was a phrase that meant they would gather all the excess fabric and oftentimes even take it and tie it around their waist so their legs and feet were unhindered so they could run. So when Peter says, prepare your minds, when he says, gird up the loins of your minds, he is saying to you and I, unhinder your minds. Do not let your minds be encumbered with things that prevent it from running to this glorious great gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, prepare your minds and exercise self-control. Uh, self-control is, of course, part of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, when it's listed there in verses 22 and 23, it's listed there as a noun. Self-control being a character trait of a person who is in Christ Jesus and how, the, they, how they live. But here, Peter uses it in the form of a verb. And he says we're to exercise self-control. It's a verb that means to restrain or to suppress emotions and desires that are contrary to the Christian life. Now, he's not suggesting here we become emotionless mannequins. He's not suggesting here that we just walk around with blank stares on our faces all day, but he's teaching us that we exercise self-control, that when emotions and desires and things that are contrary to who God has called us to be, we self-control those, we restrain those, we suppress those, and I'll drive that point home here in just a few more minutes. So put together these two instructions really give us this understanding. Block out all the noise. Prepare your minds, exercise self-control in the emotions and the desires that you have, and block out all the noise. Why? Look again at verse 13. So that, the second half, put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Prepare your minds for action. Exercise self-control in your emotions and desires so that all of your hope is placed in what's going to happen when Christ returns. Here's here, I'm gonna break this down for you. Put all your hope means all your hope. If you've got if you've got money in the stock market and you've got somebody that manages that for you and you trust them you trust their wisdom and they say to you hey i I think you got to put all your money in xyz stock you you don't go back to them and go okay well let's just put 90 percent of it in and i'll keep 10 percent over you trust them okay i'm gonna put it all in If you're a a piano student of Don's and she sends you home one day and says, I want you to put all your time in this next week into practicing on your less dominant hand. You don't go home and practice with your dominant hand on the piano part of the time because she said, put all your time into it. When the instruction is put all of something, it means put all of something. And so we block out all the noise, we prepare our minds for action, we exercise self-control so that we can put all our hope in the gracious salvation that will come when Jesus returns. Understand this salvation to come. We, we live, we who are in Christ live, if you want to think about it this way, in a down payment of that salvation right now. We experience the fullness of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and through the power of his spirit. We, we get glimpses. We, we look through the, the reading that I had Mike and Debbie do earlier. We look through little, little windows, little knot holes sometimes of God's great kingdom. But we're just living in the down payment of it. The fullness of what Christ achieved at the cross, the fullness of what came about by his being raised from the dead, is a salvation that is to come, and it will come when he returns. And again, this is commonplace throughout the New Testament. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2, beginning verse 11, and this is what he says For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Over and over and over in the New Testament, this is driven home. Do not hope here. Do not hope in this world. Do not hope in this earthly life. Your hope is found somewhere else. And most notably, your hope is found, obviously, in someone else as well. Peter gives us really some character traits here in this section in First Peter 1. Look at verse 14. When we put all of our hope in that salvation to come, we become obedient. Verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. Sometimes we think obedient living is just being obedient to the next thing, but obedient living in the Christian life is also not regressing. It's not just moving forward, but it's moving forward without regressing, without slipping back into the old ways. He then goes on, verses 15 and 16. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Here here's, I think, what Peter's just simply trying to get to us. If you are obedient, holy living will follow. If you and I are obedient to the words of God, if we're obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life, holy living will follow. It's a natural progression from obedience to holy living. One, one of my two younger kids, I won't give away which one it is, but um, doesn't really like it when they get in trouble. And they don't like it when I get mad. And so they say as much. I don't like it when you're mad at me. You know what my response always is? Then don't do things that make me mad. If you don't like it when I have to get angry at you as a parent and correct you, then don't do the things that lead you to that point. And so that that, that same sort of illustration is what applies here. If we want to live holy lives, and, and make no doubt about it, as Christians we should be asking that. How do I live more holy? we want to live holy lives, it begins by living obedient lives. And then he says in verse 17, the third character trait, "'Remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray is no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of here of Him during your, during your time here as temporary residents.'" whether your translation says temporary residents or sojourners or foreigners or whatever it says, it's all the same thing. You and I as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are living somewhere that is only temporary. And therefore, it is not what we are to put our hope in. We are strangers and aliens uh, in a a world that is not yet fully belonging to the kingdom of God. Uh, again, in 1 Peter verses 3 and 4, if you look over there and, uh, uh, to your left there in chapter 1. He says, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, is His great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the, de- from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Sometimes we we think about this salvation as being kept in heaven and so our minds kind of go, well that means that we're only going to experience that future salvation in heaven. But understand what the scriptures teach is that there's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a new earth free of sin free of death free of everything that it has right now and it is in that where this salvation of God this fulfillment of the kingdom of God is going to come when Christ comes and so don't don't be deceived when it says that is being kept for you it doesn't mean it's being kept for you that you will only experience it there if you, if you come to my house and I say, hey, I threw some, some L8s in the refrigerator for you, it doesn't mean you have to climb into the refrigerator to drink them. It means I've reserved them for you there. I've kept them for you there so that you can then take it out and enjoy it and, and participate in it and experience it. And so this salvation that's waiting for us in heaven, the salvation that's being kept for us in heaven, is one that's eventually going to be poured out upon this earth. We're temporary residents in a world where the current systems operate. It's why Jesus said to Pilate, "My kingdom is not of this world." There's some who've taken that first part and said, well, "Yeah, well, he just—he was talking about heaven." No, he wasn't. He said, "My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting." What he was saying to Pilate was, "We do things differently. Your kingdom is." achieved this way my kingdom is achieved this way through death through humility through service and it's because of all these reasons our hope has to be fixed in the right place secondly then our christian hope must be shared if you look at 1 peter 3 13 through 17 our hope must be fixed because our hope is to be shared This is where we get into being the presence of hope. Beginning verse 13. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Our Christian hope must be fixed because our Christian hope is to be shared. And if my hope and your hope are in things of this earth and of this world... If my hope and your hope are in, in systems of this world, if, if, if our hope is wrapped up in economics and politics and social and class systems and all the things of this world, then our hope looks nothing different than their hope. Dallas Willard has this book called The Allure of Gentleness, Defending the Faith in the Manner of Jesus. And he says this, If you do not exhibit the presence of a life that is above this world something that is coming into you and giving you joy, peace, and strength in a situation that looks very bad from the outside, there isn't going to be anything for people to ask about. You're just going to be behaving in the same way that unbelievers down the street do. If in my life and your life, if in whatever plagues us, whatever surrounds us, whatever makes us uncomfortable, whatever is, is damaging us, if, if we don't have hope and peace and love and joy, if we don't have this fixed hope that there's something better, infinitely better to come, and, and so we, we let that sustain us through those moments, then there's not going to be anybody asking what we have. Because our response to all those things looked the same as their response. And he says, we have to be ready to give an answer. And he, he does this, Peter does this in the frame, framework of suffering. Verse 13, he asks this question, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? He's it, it, really saying, nobody should harm you if you want to do good. <laughs> but some people do, Right? If you do something good if you stand up for something good if you build a foundation on something good there are people who want to tear that down and so he says but even if you do suffer for doing what is right God will reward you so don't be don't worry or be afraid I get asked the question quite often does God want us to suffer that's the wrong question Because to say, does God want us to suffer, is to paint God as this being who's looking down upon us and going, okay, well, sprinkle a little tornado there, and a little hurricane here, and a little cancer over here, and a little diabetes over here, and a little economic frustration over here, and that's not what he does. The right question is not, does God want us to suffer? The right question is, does God allow suffering as a reality of human life? And the answer to that is yes. But he allows it for purpose. And he allows it for his glory. Here, in this context of what Peter writes, he allows that suffering that they may then be able to give an answer for the hope that they have. Look at at verse 14. Even when you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. He goes on, first part of verse 15. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And we'll stop there for this point. We move in our Christian hope from worry to worship. Remember back in 1 Peter uh, 1.13, I talked about that issue of self-control there being an issue of controlling desires and emotions and things that are contrary to the Christian life. Worry and anxiety is contrary to the Christian life. That doesn't mean you can't be concerned. It doesn't mean you can't have have concerning thoughts about someone who's going through something, but it it means we don't give in to worry. We don't give in to anxiety. It doesn't dwell upon us. It doesn't stay. It doesn't become the, the mantra of our life. Here, Peter takes it this way and he says, don't worry about what's going on, but instead worship Christ as Lord. In, in this sense, worship here means to become even more devoted and more dedicated to Christ, even when all around you is falling down. If worry and anxiety override our worship of the Lord, then that's a revelation to us that our hope is not securely fixed where it needs to be. If worry and anxiety take over, if they, if, they, if they keep us up at night, if they dominate our thoughts, if they dominate our words, what we're really stating is that our hope is not as fixed as it should be. Look at verses 15 and 16. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. We move from worry to worship and then we do not shrink back, but we share. I I, I know that that as we look in the world around us, I know the, the temptation that's there for all of us to talk about how bad things are getting. Economically, socially, culturally, politically, wars and rumors of wars and so on and so forth it's such an easy thing to do and it's such an easy thing to do in our minds to go I wish we could go back to whatever time I caution you with that one for a couple reasons number one you can't okay (laughs) Um, number two what might have been good for one person in that time wasn't necessarily good for all people and Christians are supposed to work for the good of all people but but we, we get to that point where we kind of look and, and, and we, we, we see all this. And the, the kind of natural human response is to go, oh, woe is me. And what Peter is saying is, what an opportunity. When life is crumbling around you and me, when we're paying more for a gallon of gas than we once did or want to, when when we pay more at the grocery than we once did or want to, when systems around us seem to be crumbling, when culture around us seems to be crumbling, rather than shrinking back and going, woe is me, we step up in Christian hope that is fixed where it needs to be, and we say, what an opportunity to be the presence of hope. What an opportunity to live in such a way that, as he says it, somebody comes and asks you, Where do you get this kind of hope? Where do you get this kind of sustaining force in your life that everything is crumbling around you, and yet you don't seem to be phased by it? He says we always are to be ready to explain it, and look how he says we're supposed to explain it, beginning of verse 16. Do this in a gentle and respectful way. Uh, it, it, honestly, if you don't grab anything else today, please grab that. You know, I've heard the saying used by preachers and, and others before, and I've probably even said it myself that no one's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. That's probably too broad of a statement because maybe somewhere in some time, in some way, shape, or form, one person was argued into the kingdom of God, right? But I can just tell you in my life, I've never seen anybody debated into a conversion. I've never seen anybody argued into a conversion. But I've seen many, many people who, witnessing the power of the Christian life in someone around them, said to that person, I want what you have. I need what you possess. And we explain it with gentleness and with respect. What Peter is really describing here. That that word for explaining it, or uh, some of your translations say give a defense or give an answer, but it's where we get the word apologetics from. If you've ever, ever heard of Christian apologetics, apologetics is just the practice of defending our faith. And, and no, it doesn't mean defending our faith in a, in a vile way. It doesn't mean defending our faith in an angry way. It just means when somebody comes to you and says, hey, how, why is your way the only way? Then we're ready to defend it. We're ready to give an answer. We're ready to, to give an explanation for it. And Peter says we do that with gentleness and respect. Why? Because our hope is fixed. Fixed. When when you and I truly live with our hope being fixed where and in whom it's supposed to be fixed in, there's nothing that no one can do or come to us with that should shake us or rattle us because our hope is not here. He says there in the end of verse 16, then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ he kind of wraps that up by really just saying this to us. Your life my life is either the best or the worst evidence that Jesus is true. Your life and my life is really the best or the worst evidence that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Savior, that Christianity is true. That's why every single time we have these Christian scandals, That's why every single time we have these people who have been touted and put up on pedestals and made to do no wrong and they fall. That's why it causes such a ripple effect through our culture. May our lives be the best evidence that Jesus is real. To to kind of wrap up, I've tried to think all week of how to kind of explain what this means that our, our hope is fixed and how we live and so on and so forth. And Honestly, it was this morning as I was um, putting, putting stuff in my beard and combing it out and getting ready, and this just came to me. You know when you get ready to go on vacation? And you know how those days leading up to vacation, you're just busy, right? Like you're doing all the laundry, you're washing all the things that you hadn't been wearing because it's 40 degrees here, but where you're going, it's going to be 80 degrees, right? You're doing all that. If you've got kids, you're not only packing for yourself, but you're packing for them. You're cleaning your house because nobody wants to come back from vacation to a dirty house. They have to clean it, right? And, and even in those days leading up, like people know you're going, where are you going? I'm going to the beach. And what do you do? You share, right? Oh, I can't wait to get, I love the beach. I love the mountains. I love this theme park. I love where we're going. On and on. You do all that in the days, but where is your mind fixed in those days? It's fixed on that destination, isn't it? While you're packing and cleaning and washing and sharing and telling and making sure the tickets are there or making sure the the route is mapped or making sure you know where the cheap gas is or whatever it is you're doing, the whole time you're doing all that, your mind is fixed on that destination. Christians, let's be packing and cleaning and making sure the routes are good and sharing and doing all that and have our minds fixed on the hope of the destination. The destination of a salvation that is coming to this earth in its fulfillment as Jesus the King, not Jesus the baby, comes. And let us have a Christian hope that is fixed and a Christian hope that we are always willing and ready to share. With gentleness and respect for all who do not know. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt@gmail.com. gmail.com.